Before we get started on today's episode, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the work we're doing here at Masters of Motion. Recently, we launched the Melbourne Freelance Document. We asked the Masters community to recommend outstanding freelancers they'd worked with in the past. Through these recommendations, we've created an interactive freelance list, which members of the Masters community can gain access to to find awesome freelancers. We launched Melbourne this month and have plans to launch Sydney very soon. If you'd like to find out more about the freelance document, check out mastersofmotion.com.au. Now let's get into the show. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be having a conversation with the creative director, James Hackett. Back in the 90s, James did a traditional visual arts degree. Straight out of uni, he got a job as a graphic designer, working on Disney's iconic brands, where he learnt the crucial design skills he would need for a career in graphic design. He then moved to London, where he worked under the legendary animator, Run Rake. Now with a mixture of graphic design skills and animation, he returned to Australia to work at the ABC, before starting in the early 2000s, Hackett Films, which became the legendary Studio Hackett. In today's episode, we'll discuss essential tips for freelancers, advice for creative directors, the importance of mentoring. We'll also discuss James's passion for creative writing. Thanks very much for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. No worries, always happy to chat. What does it take to land a job at Studio Hackett and then thrive? It takes a bit of talent to land a job with us, but we're happy for that talent to be raw, which can be demonstrated in illustration. It can be demonstrated in having a certain passion and kind of like done a series of illustrations or they've made a short film or they've done something that's really demonstrative of some serious commitment. That can be a great thing. And you combine that with a good attitude and you've got potentially great employee. Yep. And if the skills develop quickly, then that person will thrive. What sort of behavioural sort of things do you think makes them be successful once they get started? Attitude is a huge thing for us. So we, we definitely hire for attitude and train for skill. As long as there's a good attitude there and there's a bit of talent, then we feel we can run with that. So if the person is contributing ideas and being social and being generally collaborative, then that's a huge step in the right direction. So it's sort of passion and attitude. Yeah, yeah, totally. I would say passion, attitude and talent are probably the three big things that we would look for. What are the sort of things that you expect from a motion designer in their first week? In meetings, they'll be working by themselves and also as part of a team and they would be expected to creatively contribute to the project no matter what level they're at. Potentially, they may have to stick to a style, so potentially there's a kind of a style that's already set and run with the uh, creative direction of the project. We would expect in their first month that there would be a bit of training. We would expect they would 
develop their skills within the first month, we'd expect to see some improvement. We would allocate someone specifically, potentially we'd allocate two specific people to them. So they would have a senior designer that would be allocated to them as kind of a mentor and then potentially a producer or myself above that. So there'd be someone working closely with them, helping them and overseeing them. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that's informal and sometimes that's more structured. It depends on the designer and who they're working with. The reporting line is quite important. So I'm going to move on to freelancers now. So it'd be good to sort of hear the comparison between what you expect from a freelancer compared to what you expect from a person who's working full time. It's a grey area because I think that sometimes, as you'll know, when you're running a studio, Matthew, you'll know that it becomes blurry because you end up with people that become permalance. You end up with people that are with you for three months or six months, uh, which is great because you get a great working relationship. I like freelancers to integrate themselves into the culture of the studio, which is great, and most freelancers do, and we love them for it. But I guess sometimes financially it is quite hard when they're on a quite decent day rate. You sometimes can feel yourself wanting people to stay off their social media and stuff, but to perhaps focus on the job at hand. What I found was when I was freelancing, I had to bring my A game and I always felt the pressure I had to sort of deliver on the day. And in full time, I felt a bit more free to maybe not have my A game all the time because I knew that, you know, I've worked hard for the last six, seven months for this company and if I have a bad day, then that's okay. Exactly. I totally agree, yeah. So if a freelancer wanted some tips on what would be the best thing you would need to know to come and work at Studio Hackett, or any other professional studio, what would be your top 10 things I would need to know? One, collaborative attitude. Two, work fast. <laughs> Three, punctuality. Four, report in with your uh, progress as you go. Five, communicate well. Be communicative at all times. Six, skill up on your own time. Don't try and train up on our time. If you, if you want to find some new skills in animation software, it'd be great if you could do that in your own time. Seven, set your day rate according to your skill. Eight, know your strengths and weaknesses. Nine, keep off your phone and social media. Check it in your break. And ten, add to the vibe. Be social with your coworkers. Most of them are sort of not skills-based. Ironically, yeah, they're not really skills-based, are they? But I suppose work fast is a broad one that applies to all software. So, James, you studied visual arts in university. How did you go from being in visual arts to being a motion design animator? And if you could give us a brief step-by-step -step description of your career, that'd be fantastic. Got out of college, got a job, which everyone was surprised about. It was a little character merchandise company. So they had clients like Disney. They had Their biggest client was Warner Brothers, locally and in the States. And we were doing design and illustration and we were drawing them and we were also using computers to lay out typography and we were doing design work. And so I learned to be a graphic designer, basically. But I didn't learn that at college. I learned that on the job. They sent us to New York, which was kind of cool. About two or three of us went to New York and we learned with some great old school New York people there. We were doing a specific job that we had a deadline for. So it was a very busy time. I went and did similar work to that in London, did similar sort of design and illustration work, working for design companies that had Spirograph, Hasbro, Play-Doh, all these kind of quite big brands as their clients. 
Yeah. Um, doing design, doing illustration, often with a kid's kind of focus. And then I took this like 75% pay drop. So I was paid one quarter to be a runner in a little animation studio yep. called Bermuda Shorts. And I worked as a runner, running around Soho, delivering tapes, doing stuff, making tea, line testing animation, doing whatever I could. And then quite quickly advanced from that to being a freelance animator and then really honed my skills there in London. Yep. Adobe wasn't as big on animation um, as it is now. So I started to apply those skills that I had learned in design and I applied them to animation. I really managed to hone my animation and motion graphic skills when I was in London. And then came back here, freelanced around, worked for the ABC for about two and a half years. And what were you doing at the ABC? I was doing animation and motion graphics within a department there. And then I went on to work on a series with The Chaser and Andrew Denton, left the ABC, set up Studio Hackett. That's about it in a nutshell. And then 14 years of Studio Hackett? Uh, yeah, yeah, June 2004, I think. It was incorporated and yeah, 14 years. Could you tell us a little bit about Studio Hackett, its story and culture? My accountant said to me, James, you've got to start a company. It was June 30 at uh, two in the afternoon, I think. And so I had two or three hours to come up with a name. We had to register the business before the end of the tax year. Yeah. I was a sole trader with about three or four sole traders regularly billing me. So for some reasons I don't fully understand, I had to start a business. Obviously, I felt like the name was a little bit rushed, so it was called... Hackett Films, and now just adjusted to Studio Hackett to reflect the fact that we have broadened our kind of remit a little bit. Have you stayed at the one location the whole time? That little spiel that I was mentioning when it was um, 2004 and my accountant was saying, you've got to start a business. Yeah. I was in a little terrace just on the edge of the industrial sort of warehouses that are in Surrey Hills. We had a little terrace. The terrace was actually three bedrooms, which was kind of cool because... Wendy's business was in one bedroom. My business was in the other bedroom. Obviously, the third, actually larger bedroom was for, for sleeping in. And we used to, you know, make fresh juice and we tried to sort of overcompensate, but I did particularly. Wendy moved out first and then I took over both spare bedrooms. I tried to overcompensate and kind of make juice and make it feel kind of friendly because it was a bit weird, you know, people coming around to your house. Yeah. Uh, we went from that little terrace. We went. We had a nice little studio, which I shared with Brendan Cook in Surrey Hills. Uh, that was down near Central. And then we moved here to Chippendale and we've been here in Chippendale for many, many years. Now I'd like to talk about being a creative director. One of the big questions that's talked about a lot and I often get asked, what's the best way to deal with negative feedback from the client with negative feedback, it doesn't hurt to remind yourself that they are the client, that their feedback is potentially good. I'm, I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. You get the feedback, you're like, oh, what? Why? They don't understand my genius um, or whatever. We all do that and everyone's guilty of that. But I mean, I would say eight times out of 10, if I give it a couple of minutes thought, I go, yeah, I can see why. I may not agree, but I can certainly see why that feedback has come in, you know, it's only very rarely that people 
give slightly irrational feedback based on false assumptions or whatnot. How do you stimulate creativity within your studio and what's an important tip that you would pass on to a person who wanted to become a creative director? You've got to have an environment where people feel comfortable to say their idea. Producers are very creative. They often contribute great ideas. Our junior designers and animators contribute ideas and, and you as a creative lead just need to curate have your own ideas. It's great if you've got your own ideas because otherwise people may question (laughs) your creative leadership. It's all curation in a way. Creative direction is all curation. You're curating what goes in and what goes out, what stays in and what stays out, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. What's the difference between working on projects and managing and creative directing projects? One thing you have to accept is you may not get much work done, which a lot of people forget. So if you have five people in your team, you've got Say you've got two 3D guys and a, a couple of 2D designers and yourself. That's a five-person team. If you have to delegate and creatively direct every task to those four people, as well as giving yourself a little bit of something to do, and potentially you're across another job or two as well, if you are a kind of a design director, then you're not going to get the productivity out of yourself. And some creative leads or people in that role beat themselves up quite badly. I've heard a lot of people say that. So now I'd like to talk about the difference between working in a team and working as an individual to deliver a similar sort of project. And which do you think is more stressful, directing a team or working by yourself? Working by yourself is slightly less stressful, but slightly less fulfilling. Um, Working on something creatively with a team is pretty much the main reason I got into this game and probably the main reason that keeps me in it. Yeah, I feel like working alone, no one's there to dig you out of a hole. Client feedback's a lot harder to take because you you can't have someone else's point of view from your other designer who goes, oh, look, you know what, I reckon that could work and we could do this and let's do their idea, but let's also do our idea. That The isolation of working alone, the places you can get creatively as a team, I think are pretty nice. The stress levels are higher, I think, when you're across multiple jobs with multiple clients and you're juggling lots of things. I relish the moments that I get to not do that. For me, one or two hours, maybe if I'm lucky, I might get four hours of focus on something, but it might be, you know, with lots of interruptions. Yep. I'm nostalgic for that. But for me, the nostalgia of having some nice focus doesn't outweigh the pleasure of collaboration. Do you feel like design is work and management is not work? Because that's the sort of thing I felt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of unfulfilling sensation because you feel like you're just doing management, but actually the management is the work, which I sort of found later on. I agree. It took me a while to come across that as well. You get real affirmations of it. If you're very clear to a designer and the designer understands your direction and they're a great creative person and you have set them on a path and hopefully you've inspired them. That's a big part of your role. Yep. If you're a creative lead, you've inspired them, you've given them a few references, you've hopefully got them excited about the brief and then they come back with something amazing, then that's just gold all round. 
you have to accept that they have come up with it and not you, but, and that can be a bit of a thing for some people. I certainly dropped that issue many, many years ago, but that is the payoff. How do you meet clients' expectations without blowing the budget? And my, my short answer to that is you don't. You blow the budget quite often. It's very hard to run a business and blow every budget because you will go broke yeah. very, very quickly. And so you have to choose your battles and occasionally blow it and occasionally not. It's very important to you know, manage expectations because I think it's very confusing for people. I mean, again, it's this empathy thing. If you could imagine from a client's perspective, say they're a corporate client or something that, that they don't know much about production, but they know that their phone can shoot 4K, but they don't know that they need a gimbal to stabilize it, or they don't know that, you know, motion control cameras are bloody expensive and take at least half a day to program, or whatever the complexities may be. Yep. You're there to inform them of that, but you've got to be very clear about all of that because production value is slippery. People don't understand especially with animation, it can cost $50 a second or it can cost $5,000 a second. You're talking about explaining to them the process and explaining to them how it all works. So therefore they know, so therefore they're not tempted to want more than what the budget can deliver. Yeah, totally. And just explain to them. I mean, you know, people want to understand the process. Say, well, look, sure, let's do it in 3D, but you've got to limit your characters. We can't model and rig a truckload of characters on that, but I can see with what you're getting across that we could have one great spokesperson yep. and they could cover all your messaging and that'll work really well for you. Like, so you want to keep it kind of optimistic. Okay, so you're talking about keeping it optimistic. <laughs> what are the most important things you need to do to retain your clients? Retaining your clients isn't always your choice because they are, by nature, clients. Yep. And sometimes they need you and sometimes they just don't need you. Your client will go from needing one thing to needing another thing. You've got to change your offering. And if you have a good relationship, they'll be happy to come and get it from you potentially. Like we've done, you know, character-based iPad games. And that was because clients trusted us to do them with them. You know, we had in-house Unity people uh, we now know a lot about that. So that's the great thing about client relationships is there's, is there's a chance that if there's confidence and trust that you can go on a long and wonderful journey together. So how much do you think the actual personal relationships are the key? Oh, I think personal relationships are, are very key, yeah. And I think that the relationships can last. Like there's been clients that I haven't worked with for 15 years and then you find yourself working with them again. Yeah. Which is fantastic in a sort of get the band back together, you know, nostalgia. I mean, I feel like some people like that. Some people want to move forward. I like to use different JOPs. We've got one guy that we use quite a bit, but you want to, you want to mix it up. You're not always the right studio for the job, so you have to accept that as well. You can't get offended when your client goes and and tries the, the new studio in town or, or whatever. That's interesting. I always do get offended, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> uh, well, it always frustrates me. I'm working my ass off trying to keep people. Yeah, yeah. What are the most common reasons for losing clients? If you have the relationship, but you haven't maybe given the job enough attention, I think that's probably number one for me. 
if they know that you're good at attention to detail and they can somehow tell that you're not across it or it hasn't been given the love that it should be given. The other headline is probably management of expectations. Somehow if people think that they're getting one thing and then they get another thing, that can be a real problem. Yeah, I always found that frustrating. I put in so much work to keep clients and then they'll say, oh, we'll just take this out and get some pictures on it and you've done four projects in a row. You have to be mindful that culturally there is an idea that three quotes is due diligence in the process of procuring work. So if you are a big company and if you're a government body that is spending wisely or squandering public money, there is a general culture out there that if you go get three quotes, you've done your job. The bad side of that is people are asked to do logos, people are asked to do the job to get the job. And uh, what's bad culturally, I think, here is design companies doing whole amazing style frames and doing amazing work for no money on a three-way pitch for a job that's not going to make them money. So I think that that is a dangerous thing for our industry as a whole. But don't be offended when people get three quotes because it's due diligence. I mean, certainly if you're working with a government department, they could lose their job if they don't get three quotes. Do you still work on the tools as a creative director? Uh, yes, yeah, I'm still on the tools. It's a bit on and off. I, I, some ways I wouldn't mind being on the tools more, but I'm doing uh, quite a bit of writing still, a uh, little bit of character design and illustration, a um, little bit of typography. Occasionally I do even a bit of comping. I mean, it, that, it's great having two wonderful producers because they can kind of keep the wheels of our industry turning while I do a bit of that sort of stuff. And yeah, and still creative directing. I do love having senior designers that can sort of either self-direct or run a small team. Sometimes I quite like to just leave people alone, which is also a nice thing to do. Do you ever see a day when you'll be off the tools completely? I mean, I've had patches where I go weeks without being on the tools. I suppose it depends on the makeup of the company. I feel like I've got two great producers at the moment, Zoe and, and Naomi, and I suppose they really allow and afford me to be on the tools a bit more. I, I don't really want to ever be totally off the tools, to be honest. Yeah, I'd like to always be on them in some way, yeah. Cool, great answer. What are the benefits of being a multi-skilled creator? The real plus side of a bit of multi-skilling is that one skill informs the other. That strangely, writing informs animation or that producing informs design or whatever. You know, there's these all these kind of cross-pollinations that can help. I mean, the downside, of course, is jack of all trades, master of none, but that's obviously a curse that can happen to anyone. What inspired you to move into the area of writing? I think I decided to get into writing just because of a desire to do longer form work. So basically, we've done a bit of kids' series stuff and we've sort of had enough kind of experience in long form to kind of whet our appetite for it. Yep. Uh, we did four books for a client. As I said, we did a couple of character-based games for clients and they have a narrative angle. And I think that it just, not that design is in any way superficial, but 
when design can meet a story, I feel like it can create a lovely, deeper narrative that can feel more creatively satisfying to be part of. Cool. So what was the hardest thing you had to learn to progress your career? I reckon the hardest thing I had to learn was to write. My family's quite literary in many ways. Yep. My mum was quite academic. She did a master's of psychology and she worked at quite a high level as a psychologist. Dad is an actor, so he was quite literary in the sense that he would be rehearsing his lines around the house or he would go for a bushwalk and rehearse his lines. My brother um, was, was in some ways more bookish than me, much more well-read, and I was like the visual kid in the family. You know, I was always the one who was drawing or noodling around or sculpting or, you know, mucking about with visual media. So that was my shtick, you know. You know and it's quite formative, isn't it, within families? You know, that's your thing. You, that... Well, if you're, if you're good at it and enjoy it, that's generally what people focus you towards. They do. People focus you, you focus yourself, you you frame your identity around these things. And I know other people do this and I did this as well. And I guess that then I had to write treatments for titles and write treatments for commercials. And then I started to have to write scripts and the scripts w- would get longer. And then I started to have to review, you know, 11-minute scripts for kids' TV series. And then I started to have to be a consultant on writing and and do much, much more writing. So writing was my biggest challenge. And what did you do to sort of like, what did you, what were the sort of things that you did to sort of increase your knowledge in the area? Did some courses, which I hadn't done. In some ways, it got to the point where I'd sent my staff on many more courses than I'd sent myself. And so that was an interesting process. It was great to go back and do some writing courses, multiple writing courses. Uh, What were the key things that helped you improve your writing? Was it like doing lots of writing or was it like reading more or what were the key things? A truckload of hours was the key thing. Yeah, (laughs) basically just a lot of time. I would just go home every night and write. And then I write with my job as well. You know, obviously that is part of my just day-to-day work. So that helps. You know, when you're doing treatments and you're doing designs, like, and you're presenting a lot of storyboards, what value do you put on the written word in those presentations? I feel like some people don't read. This is the irony of writing in a way. And I've heard quite venerable scriptwriters laugh about this as well, which is that they feel sometimes their script is ignored. But yet, two breaths ago, we were saying how important writing was. Yep. There's a few misconceptions out there, like... Yeah, basically, in treatments, I write less now. I feel less is more a bit, particularly in treatments and things like that. That said, one thing I learned from writing is you come, sometimes you've got to write the long thing to write the short thing. If you want to be really super succinct and surmise a treatment, say you've got a narrative idea that you want to put in a treatment, then you may have to write the long thing to write the short thing, and that can hurt. So you will write and write and write, but you may not even show all of that to your client. Yeah. And do you find it a profitable thing? Is the writing as profitable as the design and animation? Writing is profitable if you put it in the budget. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, we increasingly have it as a line. I mean, sometimes we have been guilty of giving writing away for free, which I think is also a, a dangerous thing. If you're dealing direct with a client that doesn't have experience in this area or, you know, maybe they're a great marketing type strategist, but 
you know, the strategy is decided that you want to have a great rapport between two characters, then sure, then we can write that for you. And and I suppose just being confident about putting it in the budget and then eventually put it in at a decent rate. Sounds good. Yeah, so I suppose that's really the benefit to adding it to your toolkit is that you can charge for it and you can make the project better if you do good writing. Uh, yeah, and you know, the other plus to writing is you can write to a budget. I mean, how many times have you had a three-minute script and a $2.50 budget? And you're like, well, this doesn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Offer some discounted writing, make the script 60 seconds and knock the job on the head. Have you had many mentors over the years and what are the benefits of having a mentor? Sure, yeah, I've had a couple of mentors over the years. For me, it comes from doing a job together, usually the mentorship, where you've actually worked quite closely together. I know there's all sorts of mentors take all sorts of different forms. You can learn all sorts of things, very subtle communicative things and also big picture aesthetic or narrative things. So, yeah, I feel there's a lot you can learn from mentors. Okay. And who have been your mentors? Uh, so my first mentor was Run Rake, R-U-N-W-R-A-K-E, Run Rake, amazing director that I worked for, very unusual style, probably almost a style that you may not get in a smaller market, but I was working for him in London. And it was a pretty big, pretty diverse, pretty healthy, you would say, animation industry. And you could have unusual artists like Run Rake, and I had the pleasure of working for him for many years. And what did you sort of learn from him? What I learned from Run and also what I've learned from mentors is that it works best when it's a two-way street. Yeah. Maybe you're learning more than they're learning, but usually your mentor should be learning something as well. I was pretty good with software at the time, um, but I was pretty across the cold, hard functionality of computers, to be honest. And... I taught him a lot about that. He was a pretty traditional sort of dude. When I first started working for him, we we used a lot of spray mount and and we're sticking stuff to cells and shooting it under camera and we're like experimenting with photocopiers and doing all sorts of weird things. And we started to use computers and we both fell. And this is a, a classic case of a collective idea between mentor and mentoree. We both felt that computers needed to be a tool and we both were very mindful that they didn't overtake the aesthetic and we both had similar opinions about when we felt computers were overstepping the mark and were dictating the aesthetic rather than being a tool. That was not so much something that we learnt but just a collective idea that we both agreed on. Yeah, I mean, there was a certain swagger to, to run. I mean, I think he sort of taught me about how you could sell yourself a bit, yep. and which is not an easy skill for anyone. He was slightly wrestling with a cocaine problem. I, I wouldn't say that he got that swagger from the drugs. He did generally have a swagger to him as a character. Sadly, he's no longer with us. He died way too young. It's very sad. Left behind a couple of kids. It's very sad, sorry. But, um, but he had a a great individual aesthetic. His motivations for work were very interesting in the sense that this is something we didn't really agree on, but he really was happy to do his work almost for himself. He lost his mother when he was very young and his work was quite personal. And, and I came to understand that actually after his death, I would say, 
Um, and in fact, when my mother died, I came to understand that a bit more. You know, I was a bit more like wanting to share stuff with the world and wanting to get it out there and get messages across and share ideas and share things. And he would be quite happy to make a film for himself and however small the audience, he didn't really care about the audience. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I found early on that when I used to do opening titles and they were on television, I used to ring up my grandma and tell her to watch it sort of thing because I wanted people to see it. You know what I'm saying? This is back when television shows were important in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. I really wanted, I was really worried about people seeing it. But then I discovered that later on that it's really all the jobs that you do, it doesn't matter who sees it. They don't really care about it. The only person who really cares about it is you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if, if you're doing it for yourself, and that's why I find this Facebook phenomenon where everyone's doing it for everyone else a bit weird, you know, but if you're doing it for yourself, that's where you really get the pleasure and enjoyment. Yeah, I think motivation is a very interesting thing. And I think that mentors can help you understand your own motivations and you can also reflect against theirs. And that's exactly what I was doing with Run. He had a very strong motivation to do very labour-intensive work and he would work hard and we all would work hard with him. Like, you know, we, we did back-to-back -back days, you know, like I remember one time five days straight, two in the morning, back in at 10, probably six days straight actually because we used to work Saturdays sometimes. Not that I advocate those sorts of hours, but he was passionate and he had reasons for his passion and they're individual. You don't all have to have the same. I mean, but everyone's motivations are different is what I'm saying. So that's working um, closely with a mentor. Do you have like a more traditional mentor experience where you've sort of uh, seen them outside work, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. And I have had a bit of mentoring informally from Andrew Denton. Yeah. I've done a lot of title sequences for him and then we get along pretty well. And so we just kind of meet up and had a couple of lunches. He kind of got busy with his podcast and I kind of got busy and then we kind of haven't done it lately. But that was kind of nice to do it with someone that I'd worked with quite closely. But then to go and sit in a cafe and have lunch and remove it from my workplace or his workplace that can be a kind of a good thing. And then something that I'd recommend to some people is think about where you do it. There can be a certain headspace to your studio or to their studio. So you might want to think about where you have this mentorship. What do you think you need to have a good mentor? So is there any sort of skills or planning or anything like that? You've got to know the person, I think, reasonably well. There's all sorts of mentoring kind of services, but I think if you can you want to try and find it more organically or and don't be shy of a bit of contrivance I mean you might hear about someone or there might be a friend of a friend and you say geez they sound interesting and don't be shy to ask to be introduced yeah you just probably need to get along all right and be able to talk because you know with mentors you should be talking about that problem you're having with a staff member or you should be able to talk about the fact that your mum died and you're using that as motivation to write a script or whatever. You've got to be, you got to wear your heart on your sleeve with your mentor. Well, I found that with my mentor, I was having business problems with contracts and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And mm. uh, like I had a big contract with the ABC and they just, their lawyer people went on holiday and they wouldn't sign, but they wanted me to start the work and I spent thousands of dollars in advance of them signing the contract. Mm. But anyway, he just talked me through it and said, don't worry, they'll pay. Yeah. Just keep going. Have faith in yourself. Uh, it will be fine. 
And that's all I needed. Yeah, totally. It's the great thing, isn't it, mentors, for that sort of thing, that you can... It's the elder statesman, isn't it? Your mentor is your elder statesman and you don't... I think, you know, society goes through periods where it doesn't respect the elder statesman uh, so much, but it's fantastic. I don't have many old people in my family, for instance, so I feel like um, I'm kind of keeping my ear to the tracks for a mentor a bit at the moment because I feel like you need that sort of perspective that you can get from someone who's been there, done that. One of the things I talked about a lot with my mentor was work-life balance. What's your work-life balance been like over your career? And could you tell us about what happens when you're running a small studio and just the work just piles up and you have a lot to do and not enough time to do it in? I've had times when I'm completely on top of this and obviously, as I mentioned before, I've been doing lots of writing, so I've been managed to get home, have some family time, do some writing and have a bit of balance. But recently we had a period where we had multiple deadlines converging around one kind of date and then we had multiple nights going to midnight to two in the morning Weekends being worked, um, sometimes two days in the weekend, as in no weekend at all. And then obviously we started making silly mistakes. Everyone's tired. I have to say that, you know, mostly the team dealt with the stress of it very well and everyone was just like laughing about it. And we had, we'd take ourselves out and we'd get some nice food and we'd come back, we'd do a bit more. You know, I would say, are you sure you're okay to stay? And, you know, try and check in with people. With freelancers, we'd check in. Sometimes we'd try and pay the freelancers over time if we could afford to. Sometimes we even had full-timers coming in on the weekend without being asked to, which I was very impressed by. But at the same time, culturally, you have to sort of not make that the norm. So there's a danger with the company that you can go, oh, isn't Michael great because he came in on the weekend and he did, um, he was doing some stop motion actually and he was in the stop motion tent like clicking away, doing stuff. And he came in and, and I was discussing this with one of the producers and isn't that great that he came in without being asked. But then of course you're creating a culture. That producer is then seeing, is maybe thinking, well, should I be doing that? And should I be working from home? And, and is that what it's expected? And you have to be mindful if, you're, if it's your company and you're setting the agenda that you can make people feel a little bit inadequate if they can't do those hours. And really, people shouldn't be expected to. Have you mastered any skills, you know, like being an animator? And what does it take to uh, get your skill to that level? Um, this is where Malcolm Gladwell comes up because he wrote a book that I can't remember the title of. I think it was called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. So the 10,000 hours thing it came from a little bit of research about what it takes to be a master of something. Probably a lot of people have heard about it. I think what you're driving at is kind of like, is there a selling your soul to the devil kind of angle here? Is, is that kind of feels like you're kind of going down an angle where can you actually master something without there being a massive personal expense? That's right. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely there can be. I think that there's modern pressures. It's just modern pressures applied to a modern lifestyle. And, and like I'm trying not to think about this as a business owner and just as an individual, but, you know, everyone has lots of pressures there's even the FOMO, the fear of missing out pressure, or there's whatever. 
If you're serious about something, though, there are sacrifices. Ideally, it's not your daughter that suffers. But I would say, you know, there have been times when certainly my family life has suffered. I mean, I went through a period where I watched almost no television, which, to be honest, I quite like television. And I, I, I mean, television's amazing now. We're in the golden era of television. I mean, there is a... All of us probably have a reasonably long list of stuff that we would love to catch up on Netflix or, or whatever the SVOD service we, we choose. Um, there is amazing stuff to watch and, I, and I watching some stuff with my kids and it was a great experience last night. And it was a really good familial experience. Obviously, there's not much communication because you're watching something, but you're sharing something together and it was great. But I just had to go, well, I want to write this story and something has to give and I would like to still try and get home in time for dinner and do whatever I need to do to help to get the kids into bed. And then I'm going to write. And sometimes I would watch half an hour or something, like a half hour comedy or something, just at the end of my writing, which may be at midnight or maybe at 12.30. And then I'd have to get up and go to work, of course. But I do feel, I don't know. I, don't, I hate to say this, but I feel like, you know, sometimes... Yeah, if you can afford the time somehow, then give yourself the time. If you can take days off work or if you can engineer your life to give yourself time, then then do it. But I, I don't think there's any one answer, but it will take sacrifice to reach 10,000 hours of any one craft. What do you think are the important times in your career when you should work really hard? The important times in your career when you should work really hard is all the time. I don't really think that you can take the foot off the gas, even if you have a good excuse like children or relationship, because there's things you can do. You can keep reading, say, you, say you're a stay-at-home dad, you can still keep reading books, you can still find the time to write a short story, you can still do stuff. So I suppose the question then is, do you advocate for working long hours, more than usual, to master your craft? I guess I do, but I would recommend that people try and do it without impacting the, the people around them overtly. And that could mean your mother, your father, your family, your relationship, your kids, your employees and, and your co-workers and your clients. Like you need to do it in a basically what we're talking about is selfish pursuits, essentially. So, you know, lots of great artists, and I'm not saying I'm a great artist or anything, but lots of artists are completely selfish. And I think that if you want to keep that in check, you have to look at the impact. And that can be being an abusive boss that demands people stay to midnight, or that could mean missing your kid's music recital. So I think what we're saying here is that you need to be making a conscious choice on what you're giving up to do this. I never made a conscious choice. I just thought, my dad does it. He worked really hard all his life. That's what I should do. And I just went and did shit and did it hard in, until I got it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Giving that all aside, do you think you're a balanced person? Uh, 
<laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm hearing I'm hearing I'm, I'm, but I feel like I'm hearing Matthew Packwood's psychology in these questions, Matthew. Oh, well, I'm tr- um, uh, the, the question, <laughs> I, I've written the questions to try and achieve an outcome. Yeah, I know. I, I wonder if your outcome is for yourself or for your audience. If I was a young person and if I went back and asked <laughs> myself when I was 20 to think about this sort of stuff, yeah, it's for myself when I was 20. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is basically what I'm trying to answer is, is that do you think it's possible to succeed working a very solid 45 hours a week and doing other shit outside work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think you could. I can't, I'm not saying that I could. Also, what's interesting about the notion of success at a 45-hour week is that I think what we're loosely talking about here is myopia. So you don't have to be myopic about one thing. And some great achievements can come from having hobbies and having two things or having several things. There's been research into, there's been some citation of successful people having diverse friends. If you all are just friends with motionographers and animators, it's not necessarily healthy for you. An echo chamber will deliver you Trump as a president. And also that ties into the 45-hour week. If you could get someone to pay you to do something very focused for 45 hours a week and then you have great alternative pursuits that involve physical activity and mental stimulation outside of those hours, that sounds like a recipe for success. I do think there's two things here. One, I think you can find mastery in 45 hours a week, but you've got to be extremely focused in those hours to make sure you're working and you're not answering emails or doing marketing or whatever. You've got to be on the tools for 40 hours. I think that modern life leads itself to having all these extra things now. And it's harder to get your mastery within the 45 hours. Totally, yeah. And I I would say a a strange tangent to that is be careful what you wish for. Do you want to be a master of that? I mean, I had one senior designer that used to consciously talk down his After Effects because he wanted to be more of a creative director. Yeah. Like, he was pretty damn good. He was pretty damn good at, at comping and After Effects, but he wouldn't talk it up that much because he wanted to be considered a a considerable creative, which he is a considerable creative. And so be careful what you wish for. Like, what do you want to master? Well, I suppose, yeah, with me, I wanted to master creative direction, design, animation, which trying to master all those things takes a lot of time and led me to 70-hour weeks for many, many years. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Over your 14 years, have you taken, like, the right amount of annual leave that a normal person would take uh, and is there any benefits to taking these breaks? There's definite benefits to taking the breaks. Yeah, and long breaks would be great. I probably need to sign myself up for a longish break at some point. Because, you know, in the public service, if you work for 10 years, you'll get like long service leave or whatever. It's obviously a little bit harder when you're running a small business <laughs> to give yourself long service leave. It can be done, I think. Yeah, I would say over the 14 years, I probably haven't quite taken the recommended amount of holidays. But now I feel like now that I've got kids, I'm probably pretty close to the standard four weeks a year. And we we always uh, respect the public holidays. We always take them off. Yep. Well, I think that this is something that people don't think about when they're setting up a, their own studio when they're young. You do work when you're on your holidays or do you completely switch everything off? I do usually switch everything off. Occasionally, I um, just make a commitment to not. 
I usually go one way or the other. I'm usually quite off, like completely off, so much so that sometimes they have to call Kathy the bookkeeper to try and work out a credit card number or something. Like they, the producers work quite hard to not give me a call, which is quite good of them. So sometimes I make an exception to that rule and I just go, you know what, I'm going to be writing and actually doing a bit of work and also being available for phone calls and things like that. But it, it has really stuffed up a couple of holidays and you come back not refreshed. They say there's, it takes between seven and 14 days to actually fully wind down. Firstly, if you're running at a high level before you end, if you, and usually, I don't know if it's anything like this for you, but usually right before the holidays, I seem to be like completely under the pump up until the day where I leave. Yeah, yeah. Has it been an issue for you in your business? It hasn't been a huge issue, to be honest. I think if you have some management skills, you should be able to leave your business. I've had times when I've been able to leave for quite a long time and I mean, it doesn't always happen, but I love it when a whole job can go through the studio and I know nothing about it. So you set up the business to operate in this way? It depends on the staff and it depends on how many staff we have and it depends on the job. So usually that doesn't happen, but I would say there would be two or three little jobs that have happened this year that I knew nothing about. I didn't, I wasn't the creative director, I wasn't just leading the design, I wasn't the producer, I wasn't the client contact or anything. And did you bring in another person to do your role when you're away? Yeah, sometimes, yeah. We've brought in another creative director to fill my shoes or we just make sure the senior designers are all across their projects and they've always got producers to help them out and they can talk to each other. And, and that's where the whole collaboration thing, you know, I mean, you can get good creative direction from a junior designer if you ask the right questions. Yeah, so now I'd just uh, like to talk about your private passion project. Oh, cool. I'm fascinated by this. You're writing a teenage novel. <laughs> What's that all about? It's called Ectogen and it's ready to roll pretty much. I might do another little draft, but I'm looking at trying to get a publisher and we're talking to a few publishers and we're thinking about doing an audiobook because they're quite popular now. It's started its life as a screenplay and then it morphed into a young adult fiction. I had a bit of learned advice from several people, which is write the long thing first. So I was slightly struggling to get it into a feature film. I met a wonderful lady called Jane Starts when I was in New York at a conference and she said, write the long thing first. So arguably a TV is the new film. If you want to tell a long narrative, you know, an eight-part miniseries, you're going to dig deeper into your character. So it does make sense to some extent to write the novel first because then you can go, okay, great, well, it'll cut really nicely into six one-hours for TV or, hey, with the right screenwriter, it could turn into a film or, you know what, it's just a great book. That was the project that got me writing. I mean, I don't know if I did 10,000 hours. I tried to calculate, actually. I reckon I kind of, if I add in the writing work that I've done in my day job, just at Studio Hackett, yep. and then I add in that novel and a few other bits and bobs, I reckon I probably have done 10,000 hours, but it's just a vague rule of thumb. Did you just not do anything like this before and just set out and say, I'm going to write something big? I think I mentioned earlier that I was doing some writing courses. Yep. I think the first course I did was like, 
unlocking your creativity or something like it was like this kind of like finding a character that you want to write about and all these kinds of things and what I did I quite consciously when I started doing the courses I didn't play around I didn't explore different characters I had a project that I wanted to do and I just stuck to it partly because my day life my working day would be across so many different projects like it can be quite fractured so I was like well I'm not going to fracture my hobby if you like I'm not going to fracture my writing on all the writing courses I did I was always writing one project yeah and you didn't have any fear of failure putting all your eggs in one basket that's the most hilarious thing but the mind games you have to play to keep going yeah like I was telling my producer Naomi there was at least three times that I fell asleep at the desk <laughs> just I had to put my head down and fall asleep as I mentioned before there were sacrifices I had to make it wasn't easy on my family it wasn't easy on the business it wasn't good it was potentially damaging in lots of areas and you're doing that damage yep without any guarantee that what you're doing is any good <laughs> well <laughs> i can totally understand like i'm doing this <laughs> podcast as a passion project it's getting to the point where my wife is she thinks it's gone too far but the difference between you and me is if I get a good podcast out and I can play through it and listen to it and know that it's done. Yeah, totally, yeah. With a, with a book, it's like, yeah, now I need a publisher and I've had some people read it and the feedback's been great, so that's kind of nice. Like people, I guess people reading your book is the same to people listening into your podcast. Yeah. It's been encouraging, but that subject of is there any merit in this project and... You have to decide that yourself, I guess. And it's a lifetime thing. You've done something that's quite large now and that's something that you've never done and that's diversity and diversity is interesting. Diversity is interesting and, look, if hardly anyone ever read it and it never got published, it would be disappointing, but I still wouldn't say it would be not worthwhile. Uh, you know what I mean? Because yep. of the training and the 10,000-hour thing and the getting up to speed and understanding arcs and characters and can inform a character design. So I, I still can draw a bit. So I feel like now I've got a better understanding of character and, and nuance and the spine of a story and multiple arcs that converge, you know, and all those kind of writerly things. I, and I still don't run around town calling myself a writer. It's just that, you know, within the context of Studio Hackett, we do put it as a line and we talk to our clients that we can help them write things and they seem happy to work with us. So that's good. My wife, for example, wants to write a novel and she's quite an intelligent woman. Mm. Would you recommend her having a crack at it? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, I would. I mean, I think that it doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be anything in particular. But I do think large or small individual self-motivated projects are very important and I think there is a danger when you run a business to go well the business is the project yeah and as a creative person you can go well that's it the business is the project it's a creative business therefore it should fulfill every creative need that I have but it won't necessarily do that for you uh, and I think it's not for commerce creativity for money is quite different to creativity for art for art's sake, you know what I mean? Yes, yes, I know what you mean. The satisfaction you get out of doing stuff like this 
well, not for someone else, but for your own enjoyment mm. and no money involved is what makes it awesome. Doing the podcast and doing the Masters of Motion, I get much more satisfaction out of than re- receiving a $40,000 payment, which is <laughs> really weird. Mm. Uh, yeah. It is, it is, because you need to write the $40,000 invoice Cause, payment cause or the money yeah. just comes in and then goes out. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. No, well, you're right, it does. It comes in and goes out. Yeah, I do think that there is huge satisfaction in that. And I think that I suppose, to be honest, the next level perhaps this conversation is leading to is that thing that you love earns you $40,000. Yes. Which it already does to some extent. I mean, like, I'm not complaining. Like I said, it's a small business and we do creative work and that's great and that's satisfying. But you do need to, as a creative person, keep looking around the corner to, is this completely fulfilling? I mean, look, I wouldn't have got into writing if I didn't feel I had something to write. I had a lot of different ideas. I very much tried to focus them on one idea. You know, if there's an impulse, then sometimes you should run with it. I got into the trap of I love my business, I love doing the work, uh, the money came in, and basically that's all I loved. <laughs> it just became obsession almost. Yeah, totally, and that's not that's not a bad thing. I mean, you don't need to beat yourself up about that. I mean... It's, it's probably what you needed to do at that time to keep that business going. And, and then uh, now you've got this thing and you've got other things happening. So it's a different stage. But I feel like a business will potentially keep you creatively satisfied, but maybe not forever. The final question, what are you working on at the moment? And what would you like to work on in the future? We're doing some lovely character integration, 3D character in the real world. We're doing some design work for some broadcasters. We're doing development on some uh, long-form projects. So it's a fairly diverse collection of stuff. Looking at continuing to do all the usual services that we have done over the years. And we will increasingly be talking to our clients and to broadcasters about doing some exciting long-form projects that we have in development. And they range from web series to uh, traditional TV shows. We're pitching some interesting ideas to broadcasters and also we are talking to some YouTubers and people who have existing audiences and joining forces with them. And I guess also the holy grail is making Ectogen into a series for Netflix. (laughs) That's great. I think that's an awesome place to leave it. I really appreciated your honesty and your opinions when it comes to balance and mentoring and being a creative director. So thanks once again. No worries. Yeah, it was really fun. And anytime, always happy to chat. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. You can find out more about James Hackett at studiohackett.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. One more. (laughs) I'm killing you.
What an epic. 